Hello, loyal listeners. Welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Today is episode 12. Me and my guest, Dr. Susan Campbell, will be discussing triggers in relationships, honest communication, shame, and self-knowledge, and how to parent yourself amidst the turmoil of adult life. Dr. Campbell's a great guest, a real straight shooter. I think you will enjoy today's episode. And I also want to say that today's episode marks one year, 12 episodes, one a month of making this podcast. And I'm very grateful for all of you who have stuck around to listen. Thanks a lot and enjoy. Okay, here we are back at the Anxiety Book Club. Uh, And this month, we're talking with Dr. Susan Campbell. She holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is the author of at least nine books on relationships and conflict resolution, has delivered hundreds of seminars and workshops internationally, and has counseled thousands of individuals and couples. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Campbell, for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me, Josh. Sure. So, so my history with your books is that I'm part of this uh, accountability group based in Miami, started by a, a fine and driven young man named Ivan Dynamo de Jesus, who has been periodically holding in-person book clubs, obviously before the current uh, calamities, um, on Getting Real, uh, which is one of two books that we'll be discussing today. Um, and I, I really connected with it when I read it about a year ago. So I thought it would be great to talk about it on the podcast. Okay, I'm ready for that. Cool. So, right. So we're talking about two books today, which is a, a new a new event for the podcast. Normally we focus on one, but there's a lot of great content in both of these. So the first one is called Getting Real, 10 Truth Skills You Need to Live an Authentic Life. And that's a lot about honest uh, communication, radical honesty, being vulnerable and real with the people in your lives. And then the other one is more specific, but has similar themes. And that's called five minute relationship repair. And on that one, um, Susan Campbell had a co-author, John Gray. And the subtitle there is quickly heal upsets, deepen intimacy and use differences to strengthen love. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading both of these books. Um, the first one was more familiar to me because I had already read it before, but the the second one about relationships is is really quite interesting and I think probably very useful. As you mentioned in the book, a lot of relationships fail, um, or at least divorce rates are are pretty high. So obviously there's there's something there that that needs fixing. Yeah, the the cool thing about both of these books is that not only do you provide information on how people can either get real or resolve issues in their relationships. But there's, there's guides, there's like how to, there's exercises. And in the case of getting real, there's actually like a board game uh, that you could practice with other people who are interested in radical honesty uh, to further your relationships and, and be vulnerable with each other. Yeah, it's actually a card game. So it's a little more portable than a board game. So it's 250 cards with self-disclosure questions on them that you can ask your friends or the person you're just getting to know on a date or take it home for 
Thanksgiving vacation to your family. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that would work out with the, with the family. <laughs> I've done it. So in the foreword to Getting Real, there's sort of an introduction to this concept of honesty, which is kind of what undergirds, I think, a lot of what we find in both books, the idea of relating to people, not necessarily based on what we're trying to achieve, but maybe how we're feeling at any given moment. So like, there's this quote, it's really this the first sentence that being honest, like meditation helps us experience life more fully. And, and there's an advantage uh, to being honest rather than controlling, um, as you say in the book. Wh why do you think, just sort of as a first principle, we might be interested in honestly expressing ourselves rather than trying to shape our conversations and the narratives with other people that such that, you know, we kind of get what we want? Like, isn't, isn't getting what we want sort of a good idea? Yes, and. So uh, let me uh, take this in two parts. First of all, the way we're defining honesty here, Josh, Josh and I are defining honesty, is the kind of honesty that favors relating versus controlling. So I'm going to give a little mini lecture here. Do you even know the difference, those of us who are listening out there, uh, the difference between communicating to relate versus communicating to control? And there's a place for both, but relating means you speak your truth in this moment, what you're feeling, what's going on in your body, what stories or uh, imaginings are playing in your mind or what worries even are playing in your mind. You speak these things for the purpose of revealing yourself and being known by the other. So in relating, you aren't trying to control the outcome. Um, so let's go over to what controlling means. Controlling is what most of us do when we're trying to make a good impression, or maybe uh, you think somebody might be upset with you if you say something so you don't say it at all. That's controlling. So it's when your communication, when your self-expression is determined by kind of an over-concern of how the listener is going to take it. So you modify your communication, and, it, and then that's not as honest. If you say, you know, I'm afraid to, to say this to you, so I'm going to sugarcoat it, well, then that's one level closer to honesty. And there's some places where controlling is, is fine and important, like if you're a parent and you, you want to impress upon your child to look both ways before crossing the street. Those are, you know, times when control is absolutely necessary. So I just wanted to kind of give us a definition of the way we're using this particular brand of honesty is the type that just is talking about you. So honesty, the way we're talking about it, is not going to the person um, who you work with and saying, you got to start pulling your weight around here. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to the person who you work with and saying, you got to start pulling your weight around here, you know. But it isn't about yourself. So the idea of getting real is if you say, 
you know, there's something I have to talk to you about. So I'm I'm kind of role playing now. You and your coworker who you think is doing all the easy stuff and leaving all the hard stuff for you. You know, I talk to a lot of people in business where they feel like they're not getting uh, a fair deal with regard to us, some people being more lazy. So you would say, you know, when you asked me to do that thing for you, I said to myself, you know, I think I'm busier than he is. Why is he asking me? And so that's that would be an example of relating versus controlling. You reveal what's going on inside of you. You might even say, you know, and it 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 it, it kind of pissed me off, or it kind of hurt my feelings, uh, or it kind of gave me the impression that um, you're trying to get away with something around here. And I just want to clear the air and, and let you know I'm feeling that. And now I want to hear how you feel. Because relating is two-way. It's not just I dump my stuff out on people. It's I say it, but I watch to see if they've received it, how they've received it. So it doesn't mean I don't care about the outcome. It means I'm not controlled by my fear of the outcome. In other words, I still care about the person. I still care if he's going to go away now and uh, not ever want to talk to me again. And I might say that, gee, I'm worried that you might not want to talk to me now. <laughs> let's, let's, I want to find out how you feel about the feedback I gave you. So that's, that's relating, that's honesty, that's just sort of everyday honesty. And then I want to come to the second part of your question, Josh, about, well, aren't we supposed to try to get what we want? And um, my answer is yes, absolutely. Make outrageous demands about things that you want, but own it. Like, I want you to do something for me if I'm going to do this for you. You know, if I go back to this workplace example, or uh, I want to have sex tonight. How about you? Not, not, now we're not talking to your coworker here. I'm giving you a different context. Or um, you're on a, you know, you're on a date and, and you say, um, you know, I want, I want you to pay the bill and then I'll pay the next one. So, you know, wants of any, of any sort are um, positive. They're a positive thing if you own that they're your wants. The, um, so in that sense, you're asking for what you want, but you're not worried about exactly how you say it. So, so here's where the outcome bit confuses people, and I think just the question, well, aren't we supposed to try to get what we want? Yes, but do it in an open way. So you're telling the person what you're feeling and what you're wanting versus some kind of, I did this for you, so now it's your turn to do that for me. That's not a, an open, transparent thing. That's a, a, that's a kind of indirect way of asking for what you want. So then the I've had people do this with me. It's a girlfriend of mine. She says, uh, you know, I'll give you, I'll, you know, I'll give you a massage and you'll give me a, f a free therapy session. And, and I, I go, wait a minute here. How did I get into this? I mean, she didn't ask me if I wanted to do the deal. She just was laying that on me. And, um, 
of course, I can you know, be honest back and say, hey, wait a minute here, let's slow this down. I don't think I ever agreed that uh, to this deal that you're proposing. So could you say that to me as a request? And then I'll tell you if I want to do it or not. Oh, that would have been a, a good outcome to that conversation. But what we're talking about when we're talking about honesty that relates versus the kind of communication that's pretty unconscious that just perhaps avoids taking risks, like avoids the risk of coming right out and saying, I'd like to have sex tonight. How about you? I mean, that's just a straight, straight out request. But people who beat around the bush and say, well, you, you know, you're probably not, uh, you know, I, I see you're tired. So you're probably not interested in being with me tonight. You know, that would be extremely indirect way of talking about wanting sex. But people do that. You know, they make up the answer to their own question, which is a form of controlling. So I'll, I'll stop there, Josh, and see where we want to go next. You've raised a hundred different questions in my head now. Um, yeah, there's so much I want to comment and ask you about on all of that. So uh, as I've been reading the books, and trying to be mindful of the way that I communicate with others, I've been collecting a couple of examples where I control instead of relate. So I'll sort of mention them there and maybe they'll prove to be good fodder for, um, for our conversation today. So I was at a buddy of mine's house a few weeks ago and we were doing a sort of social distancing hangout and I was thirsty and I'm very close with this friend of mine and I'm close with his wife also, we're friends, but maybe not as close. And for some reason, I felt kind of uncomfortable. I, I don't know what the false belief was, but I was thirsty. And what, what would have been, I guess, fully transparent and, I don't know, fully in the relating sphere of things would have been to say, hey, so-and-so, can you bring me some water? Because uh, we weren't allowed in the house. You know, we're doing these new COVID protocols. But instead, I caught myself saying something so, um, I don't know, I... It, it, I don't know if shameful is the right word, but I said, hey, so-and-so, do you think I could have a little bit of water? <laughs> ah, yeah. That's another typical way that people kind of uh, use a control. I call them control patterns. Uh, I put quotes around the word control pattern. It's a term that means you kind of mess, you kind of mess with uh, your honest way of expressing something like, no, just a little bit. No. So you're minimizing your wants as a way of managing your own anxiety. Here's my interpretation, okay? As a way of managing your own anxiety about what? So let me, let me ask you, what could you have been managing anxiety about? Like being an imposition on him or what? Yeah, I guess I, maybe in that moment, I thought that by making an order on his wife, I would be somehow out of line or, or crossing some familial, like, it. I don't know, in that moment, it felt uh, like I didn't know her well enough or that, like I could order my best friend around, but maybe I couldn't give orders to his wife. Like that made me uncomfortable in that moment. So if you had it to do over again, Josh, because this is the one of the little techniques I teach is, is revising. That's one of the true skills in the book, Getting Real. If you could go out and come in again and redo that request, I guess it's to the wife, what would you say? 
I would just say, hey, so-and-so, can I have some water, please? Maybe a please. Okay. And how does that feel as you say that? It sounds more like the person I want to be, which is not someone who asks for a, a little bit of water. Which yeah. sounds... Oh, pretty please. Could I just have a little sip of water? <laughs> <laughs> we can, you know, we can be open-hearted and tender toward that part of you that may have been shy at that point. Because I, I just want to say, you know, there's a whole lot of new rules about how um, how much we're going to interact with our friend's dishware, you know, using our friend's bathroom. We're, I mean, I'm having meetings outside with people, but they're, you know, kind of shy about asking to use my bathroom because it's inside and uh, you know, there's a lot of new rules, so we're, that's a very that's a very good one to bring up into this call right now, Josh. I think for other people. Okay, good. You know, there might be a tendency to be um, a little less relaxed about asking for things that used to be easy, like water or, or using a friend's bathroom or going into a friend's house. Because I know from in my community, we're having a lot of outdoor gatherings, but we're not doing anything indoors with, with our friends. Where are you located? I think you're in California. Basketball, California, just north of San Francisco. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And so this another example that comes up that's probably more significant than the water thing is instead of asking people how they're doing, saying mm -hmm. instead of saying, how are you, mm -hmm. which to me, I think there's some vulnerability there. I'll say something like, I hope you've had a good day instead of saying, how is your day? So I'm not getting what um, what do you what do you feel better about saying what's which is the better version of you there? The better version is the one who's sincerely interested in how someone's doing rather than just introducing this idea that you hope they've had a good day and then continuing on to like your next point or whatever real reason is that you're yeah. trying to communicate with the person. Yeah, that that that's um, that's what I would that would be my answer too. So I'm not going to pronounce things right or wrong, but I, I would prefer hearing that from a friend. I prefer a question. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So those are a couple of examples of things that I've thought of recently. And I think uh, the, the, the biggest stumbling block or the reason why, according to your books, and I agree with this, why people fail to be direct is because of fear. And as you've written also in the foreword, and I, I like this idea, is that, you know, we're big now. Um, we don't have to protect ourselves all the time like we learn to do to survive because we're big. It's it's a simple idea, uh, but it makes sense, right? Like as children, somehow we we did need to mind our P's and Q's because without the cooperation of adults around us, then, you know, we might be dead or fail to like literally survive. But those lessons learned as children they no longer apply now because it's 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 rarely the case that something that you might say that offends you or makes you feel unsafe is going to lead to like harm or or injury is that fair yeah the the basic idea is when you're under your parents care you are dependent on them for your very survival and you do maybe we don't realize it but little 
kids are quite sensitive to what is okay and not okay with the parents. Of course, there's the regular things that get rewarded and the things that get punished. But then we're also watching for cues about, oh, daddy, you know, daddy likes things that have to do with sports and he doesn't, he doesn't like things that have to do with, with music or art. Okay, I won't share that part of myself with him. You know, and these are sad, sad little rules that kids make up that limit their potential, but they are um, normal. Okay, so, and we're very uh, worried about upsetting the big people. Okay, and this is across the board. Children are dependent for many years on their parents. So they get used to shaping their behavior, including their expression of their wants and needs based on what they think the big people can handle. All right, so you've, you grow up kind of with a conditioned self. That's what psychologists call it. They call this your conditioning. These are all the little rules you learn to survive. But now you're out on your own. You're making your own money. Maybe you even have your own house. You do not have to be, you're not really dependent on your survival for anybody. But we've got those old condition patterns still inside of us, limiting a lot of what our expression is. And one of the biggest things that we are afraid of, and you know, we're going, it's just naturally human to be afraid of this, is afraid of some kind of emotional pain. And especially the kinds of emotional pain that mirror a type of neglect or abuse or emotional pain that you had as a child. So if you were the kid who didn't get listened to as a kid, you're still going to be kind of self-conscious about whether, are people really listening to me? Do they really want to, I'm in a group. Do they really want to hear what I have to say or should I talk real fast so I don't waste anybody's time? Mm -hmm. You know, patterns like that. And so what we want to do is begin to notice the ways that, we speak and, and act in those patterned ways, like that one I just, that example I just gave you about trying to say it fast and get off stage. And there's just hundreds and hundreds of ways that we habitually, like not asking for what you want directly is, is huge. It's a huge pattern. And if somebody now gets upset with you, Let's say you do ask for water in the wrong way at your friend's house and they get upset with you. They say, oh, we're not, you know, we're not giving our glassware out to, to, to guests. I asked you to bring your own water bottle and you didn't do that. So, you know, you're not getting any water. So let's say they get upset with you. Um, it's not the same as when you're little. There's no huge consequences except, and this is where we've got to be compassionate to ourselves, except the fact, the fact that I still have those sensitivities that I had when I was a child. They may not make any sense anymore because I make plenty of money and I have my own house and nobody's, you know, nobody can, can threaten my survival. But now as we get older, we get triggered if we see evidence that somebody is moving away from us in some way or disapproving of us 
or reacting toward us in a way that was painful when we were young. So that is called an emotional trigger. And that's what the whole book, Five Minute Relationship Repair, which is the second book you mentioned by Susan Campbell and John Gray. That book is all about when my emotional triggers get set off by perhaps a unexpected or shocking reaction, a hurtful reaction from someone else. Do I make myself wrong for feeling like a two-year-old? Say, and do I say, well, you know, you should be grown up now? No, we have to honestly realize that the 10-year-old that people didn't listen to back in childhood, that 10-year-old is still inside of me. And that part of me deserves compassion and tenderness when I get my feelings hurt. So the real job of growing up is being able to reparent yourself every time you get your feelings hurt or you get scared by somebody who got angry at you or you get scared before they even before you even get the question out of your mouth but you're still all worked up inside with one of those emotional triggers of oh I'm I'm you know I know I'm going to be rejected look she's not even looking at me right now and I you know I was going to propose marriage <laughs> whatever it is you know you're um very sensitive still as an adult to a lot of the same things that you were sensitive to as a child. But now, because we're big, we get to be better witnesses of it. We can notice, oh, I'm triggered. We can actually say those words to ourselves. We can actually pause and be tender toward that hurting part. Because what gets triggered is an old fear. like a, It's usually some sort of disconnection from somebody who's important to us. So the people who can trigger us are not the clerk, not usually not the clerk at the post office. It's more likely to be your significant other or your friend or your kid or your parents. Uh, and I'm talking about adult people getting triggered now. And we do need to just become more mindful of the fact that these quick emotional, like pain reactions are going to happen. And doesn't mean there's anything wrong with anybody, but it, it does mean that this is an opportunity for us to get really real at a deeper level so that we get to know what are those core fears like fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of not being good enough, fear of being misunderstood. See, I have a list of about 12 things that I call the favorite fears. And almost everybody has more than half of those favorite fears. And they're, they're like the ones that I just mentioned. Yeah, I have those written down somewhere. Um, yeah, gosh, so it's, this is such a good segue into so many of the questions that I have. Oh, by the way, that list of fears would be in the book, Five Minute Repair, Five Minute Relationship Repair. So if they want to, people who are listening want to inventory your fears, because if you kind of, kind of get to know and accept your fears, you won't be thrown off quite so badly when, uh, when you do get triggered or somebody says something hurtful or shocking. Right. So if you know your own control patterns or you know the things that trigger you, 
maybe you can more easily recognize them as stories if you happen to have, you know, a mindful moment amidst some kind of emotional turmoil. Yeah, and I always recommend people pause a little bit when you have that emotional reaction. I mean, sometimes you're at work, so you might have to go take a bathroom break, but or it's just not feasible, you're you're not feeling safe enough. But at some point, go back to that moment of, of, of feeling shocked or hurt and feel with yourself, just like a compassionate, good mother, just like the ideal mother would take care of you and your feelings. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. tell the person to, you know, you wouldn't tell yourself, your hurting self to you know, grow up and, you know, get out of my hair here, I'm busy, you would embrace this child. So we have to become good parents to the inner child in ourself that's uh, still needing some um, some time to grow up and some loving care. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And yeah, there's so much to explore and discuss, but I think one way to sort of go about that might be, you know, through some mindfulness practices, some loving kindness practices, um, but more on more on what's here in front of us with these books. I have a question about the link to childhood. Mm-hmm. So, so it seems, you know, more than reasonable that the way we behave as adults is uh, linked to this subjective self that we've developed in large part as children, learning what's safe, what's not, how to express ourselves, how to not. In the book, in Getting Real, there's stories of these people who through, I guess, workshop or maybe work with you have been able to distill the exact moment or, or maybe an example of a moment from their childhood that um, sort of incepted in them these false beliefs that now lead them to asking for water in only small amounts, for example. How important is it for people? So there's two things we could do here. One is get real. The other one is figure out why we're not getting real and trying to trace it back to childhood. Are, are those equally important? Do we, do we, must we have the first part? Uh, let's say we can't remember our childhood. Can we still just do the work without knowing how it links to our childhoods? Yes, you can still do the work without reconnecting with any childhood memories. Um, to me, there, there's always inner work to do. I'll explain that in a minute, but life is about continuing to get to know and accept yourself better and better. And then, of course, getting able to express yourself better and better, better meaning in a way that helps you get your needs met, be a creative, contributing person, and feel good about yourself. So, um, as you go through life, the way that most people connect with that unfinished childhood business, even if they don't have a memory about it, the way they connect with that is through their adult triggers. So somebody in a, in a relationship that's a significant one uh, s- says something that I take as rejection or I take as them moving away from me or not liking me criticizing or trying to control. So these are all part of on the list of the favorite fears here. 
I call them the favorite fears. And I have a favorite fears contest when I speak to audiences. And I say, well, how many people have a fear of abandonment? Okay. Almost everybody raises their hand. How many people have fear of being misunderstood? Most everybody. And then when I say fear of being controlled, not maybe only half the people have fear of being controlled. And then fear of being uh, ignored or invisible. That would be about half the people too. So, but you'll you'll see in a group in a group of any size that people nowadays are at least aware enough, self aware enough that they can raise their hand in a room full of strangers, admitting to these kinds of fears. So, that's that level of self awareness is a good beginning to being able to realize, okay, then when I get triggered. When, when I get that sort of fight, flight, freeze, or I blank out, deer in the headlights, don't know what to do, or I get instinctively defensive or aggressive or start to want to rest, you know, rest the conversational ball away from somebody, when all of those sort of emotionally reactive things happen, that means I'm triggered. That means there's one of these core fears that's activated which actually means that there's probably some core need, like the need to feel valued or significant or respected. Those are core needs for children to have met as they're growing up. So it means that some, some core fear got activated, connected to some core need that wasn't met. So I just kind of take that for granted And whenever I get triggered, I pause and do some conscious breathing to quiet my nervous system down and make space enough. And here's where I'm going to give you the technique for self-healing. This is in the book, Five Minute Relationship Repair. Once I've got my nervous system to a fairly calm place, I begin to bring the feeling back of, wow, I felt like I got punched in the gut there by what that person said to me. And now I stay with that body sensation or I stay with the more emotional hurt type feeling in my heart. And I put my attention on that. And I continue to breathe to make more space for these feelings to be there. So it's in a sense I'm saying to myself, It's okay to have these feelings. And by consciously breathing and voluntarily letting yourself have these feelings, you're activating your witness, your inner observer. And it can be a compassionate witness if you train it this way. If you just train yourself to go, oh, honey, yeah, there's hurt there. And it's like you're talking to yourself. Or you might put your hand, you might not have to use any words. Just put your hand on your heart or your belly or wherever it feels nurturing. And you just continue to breathe and be with. Because that's what a hurting child needed from their mother or their whatever the parent was. But they needed a certain kind of nurturing that we that we call holding space and that's a that's a common word now in personal growth and spiritual growth circles holding space for the hurting part of you 
And that's exactly what psychologists have always said a child needs from a mother is a good enough holding environment. That's the language that psychologists have used since the 50s, at least. But how many parents offer a good enough holding environment? Because they're distracted by so many of their own problems. They're busy. They're trying to make a living. They got more kids than just you, maybe. Um, so parents are going to fall down on the job. But each one of us inside has this good mother archetype or this capacity for self-compassion. It's in there somewhere, no matter how bad your actual parent was. So here's, here's where there's something that's just deep inside the human. And I'm just going to call it the good mother archetype. And if you pause and breathe and feel that hurt with some awareness surrounding it, some breath and witnessing surrounding the hurt feeling, you begin to reparent yourself. Sometimes an early memory, as you, as you continue to be with yourself, an early memory will pop up and you might even shed some tears or you might even feel some of the pain that you did not allow yourself to feel when you were small because it, it would have been too intense for your nervous system. Or maybe there was no support there because if you really just cried for like an hour inconsolably, it would have made your parent too upset, too anxious. So we protect our parents and like we shut down our feelings. But now it's just you and you being with this feeling and you let yourself cry for 10 minutes. Usually people don't cry for much more than that, but they sometimes do need to move some energy that's been blocked for their whole life around certain painful things. So sometimes the tears will come without a memory. Sometimes there's no tears. I mean, that's not necessary. And as I say, sometimes there's no memory, but there's just a deep feeling that this is familiar, that this, that this feeling of somehow not being important or my voice, I speak my voice, but I'm giving you just certain examples. There's there's a lot of other types of uh, insecurities, but this is such a common one. You know, I speak, and it doesn't seem to do any good. It's like it's like I, I was talking to a brick wall, and so these these kinds of memories will kind of come back, but it, it's not necessary for healing. The part that's necessary for healing is being willing to feel a little bit of that emotional pain that you probably clamped down on when you were a kid. But don't feel that pain without being able to give yourself some support through breathing and through conscious, compassionate witnessing. So that's something we can all learn. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you again brought up a bunch of really great points here that I want to ask you about. So I can imagine you know, a listener of the podcast, maybe someone like me or someone like me who had never taken the time to slow down and, and maybe practice mindfulness or get in touch with, with my heart might, might be listening to you speak or listening to us speak and say like this inner mother archetype, this self-soothing presence. Well, gee, I don't have that. All I have is, you know, like the inner critic. So yeah. 
how how does someone go about accessing this uh, this inner soothing voice when when they've gone their whole lives not even knowing they have that power? Yeah, a lot of times um, when we start attempting to bring some consciousness to a hurting part of ourself, like, oh, let's say it's the, it's the fear of abandonment. So it makes you very clingy in your relationships. And that's exactly what pushes people away. You're so clingy and you're, you're always nervous and afraid to let the other person out of your sight or whatever. So you, you know, you become, um, a, a person who the other person then starts to push away. And um, so you say to yourself, well, how can I love this tender, this part that Susan Campbell says is a tender, beloved part of myself, my fear of abandonment, and that little kid who also um, was kind of clingy because I could never seem to get, you know, I never could seem to get dad's attention no matter what I did. You know, he seemed to be more interested in his own interests. So, you know, I was, doing hoops to get his attention. It never worked, but it's that, that's that going after something and continuing to come up empty handed. Well, you know, I, I've had this all my life. I'm supposed to, and, and I don't like that part of myself. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of little person in me that, that drives people away. So yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have to confront self the self-critic there and uh all i can say is, is this this happens in layers the the coming to compassion comes in layers and most of the time people have a certain amount of self rejection if there's pain in there and we don't even like to admit that we get triggered um because that makes us feel somehow less than you know we should you know, I've had a lot of therapy. I've done a lot of groups and I still get triggered. Um, you know, people say that kind of thing. So there's a lot of self-critic, self-shaming inner statements. The only thing I can suggest is you breathe. You really breathe and you feel the feelings that you're having while you're saying those things to yourself. And again, it it starts, all of a sudden, you begin to have a dual awareness. You've got the critic, and you've got the tender part that's receiving this criticism. And you hold space. You don't, you know, you can't activate compassion because that, that's absent right now. All you're activating is, I've got this criticizer and the criticizee. And I'm able, at least I'm able to see this. And so you just witness that for a while each time it comes up and generally speaking if you can keep keep witnessing and then letting yourself identify a little bit and give a give a voice i mean if i do therapy work with somebody i would give a voice to the inner critic and i would give a voice to the person to the part of the person that feels wounded and hurt by the lack of support from the inner critic so the, the critic might say, you know, this is the part of, you know, you're the part of me that has, you know, everybody rejecting me. How am I supposed to accept you? And then you get to go to the other part and you say, well, this really hurts to hear that. 
you know, even from you, you don't accept me. And you just do like a dialogue. And for people who who don't go to therapy, if you're at all a writer, if you can write these things out, it's like a journal exercise. Dialoguing between the different parts of yourself is a very good journaling exercise. You give each part a voice and pretty soon the witness gets stronger and stronger. The witness is the, is, is the one who then reads all this stuff. You know, you've been writing furiously with your different voices and then you step back and you look at all this. And the more you're developing the witness, the more you're gonna be eventually developing the part of you that can hold space for the multitude of parts within yourself. And through, through that process, it's a, it's a strange way that you learn to become a parent. It's like you're giving birth or you have given birth to all these different parts of yourself and you're getting to know them. It takes a while to, to get to know all the parts. And then somewhere along the line, some version of acceptance. There might be acceptance with a certain grief or sadness around what you see, but there's still an acceptance. It's sort of like if you were born with one leg shorter than the other. There's nothing you can do about that. That's part of you. I mean, I guess you can get prosthetic devices, but it's still, it's always with you. And you begin to see those different parts of yourself as just, these are just things that happened. And this is the way I was wired up based on my early life experiences. So it's sort of like, you know, being born with one leg shorter. I've got a certain degree of handicap here because of how I was programmed as a child. And there's a little bit of grief there. And grief is kind of akin to compassion, only in the sense that there's a, it's a soft, softness and it's an accepting kind of an attitude. So it's almost like the more of yourself you can see that develops the witness and eventually some kind of greater perspective grows, which may or may not lead to compassion, but most people have a good mother archetype, a compassionate inner, uh, let's, let's, let's call it compassionate witness inside of you. You have that potential. So you just have to kind of take your time getting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, so another question that I have that kind of just recently entered my head as you were speaking, you know, when you said that when you go to these conferences or when you work with people and you ask them to raise their hands about these core fears that they have, so many, so many do raise their hands, maybe even a majority, and that being the kind of parent that provides this good enough holding environment, as you described it, is, is rare, perhaps, given people's uh, constraints on their attention and, and needing to put food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not a parent, uh, not in a position to become one just yet, but I, I've got many friends who are new parents and my sister will become a parent in the next month. I just, it feels like a very tall order to try to raise a child that doesn't wind up and maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but doesn't wind up with all of these um, beliefs about themselves, these insecurities, these neuroses, 
a lot of them stemming from how they were reared. Um, I don't know. It just seems like quite a burden to, to undertake the um, experiment of having children and hoping that they develop somewhat successfully um, without, you know, having to read all these great books. <laughs> well, um, what I want to say is you'll never be the perfect parent. And that's hard for a lot of parents. You just, you're going to make mistakes. Your kids are going to have some handicaps based on your own lack of development as a human. Uh, because you didn't, you didn't wait until you were 75 years old to have kids. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we do eventually grow up, Josh, but it takes a lot longer than 30 years. You know, most people try to have their kids, you know, in, in their 30s, 30s and 40s, you know. Um, yeah, you're not going to be grown up enough to do the job. So nature, you know, nature gives you something that kind of forces you to grow up a little bit more, which is being a parent. Um, yeah, I'm with you, Josh. The uh, best thing is um, to talk honestly to your parents. I mean, to your kids when you're a parent, talk honestly to your kids about what you do and don't know. Um, ask, ask for their feedback. I mean, these are the things that parents don't do because they try too hard to be perfect. Uh, tell your kids that, you know, you're not sure, but you think that, um, you know, them having a, having a car when they're 16 might not be the best idea because of whatever, you know, I mean, I'm just making up cases here, but whatever, whatever you feel, you, you, you raise it depending on the age of the kid, of course. Um, but you just try to be an interactive parent rather than an over-dominant, over-controlling parent. That's the worst thing. The worst kids come out from parents who, well, two extremes, completely neglected or completely over-controlled. But I'll tell you, the neglected ones come out a little better than the over-controlled ones. So if you got real high control needs and needs for perfectionism and you're a parent, you might want to, um, uh, I don't know, get some help or go to, at least go to a parenting class. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it's okay. Your kids are going to need, your kids are going to need to read the self-help books. They're going to need to know about triggers because certain things you have to be beyond your, you have to be out of your parents' house as a, you know, as a growing person, you just cannot successfully deal with some of these issues until you're on your own. So you're going to have to let your kids deal with some of the scars and wounds after they're out of the house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's the best we can do. I mean, let's face it. People are going to have to listen to this podcast. Otherwise, how are they going to make it in the world? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hope this gets to be a bestseller on your podcast series. Yeah. So as I was reading Getting Real, um, I tried to do the exercises as best as I could alone and jot down some of the, you know, enumerate some of the lists of things that might be holding me back or might be part of my control strategies or some false beliefs. And under things that I think I learned as a child that may be false, I wrote, worrying about things can keep you safe. 
The world is a scary place. It's better to not do than do. Take it easy. Wait. If you have two extremes, always take the middle. Privacy should be safeguarded and that shame should be avoided. How honest you are with yourself there, Josh. I'm re I'm really touched by what you just shared. Oh, well. I hope everybody will make their own list like this. The things, that, the kind of the unspoken rules that you learned growing up in your family of origin. Yeah. And like you say, it's good to know these things. And I think um, I have this penchant, and I guess other people do, when looking at the things about ourselves that we don't like to feel less than, you know, to feel like, oh, God, like, how come this stuff is still bothering me? Like, this is just further evidence of like my weakness, my badness, etc. So through the noticing process, yes, you might grow, but the cost there is maybe some emotional turmoil or some for more evidence for, you know, whatever um, inclination you have for self-loathing or, or doubt. Yeah. And once you've gotten um, kind of gotten the value on doing inner work, inner work is really about knowing what's down there, you know, like that making that list knowing knowing what's going on inside of you knowing your shadow parts which are things like shame that we don't want to show to the world um what if people made know thyself as the highest value rather than being the most popular person you know i mean a lot of our values are um programmed into us and I think the, the authenticity work that I'm doing and uh, our friend, our mutual friend Dynamo is, is doing, and a lot of us, it's to try to redefine what a good human being is because the rules that we've made up about what a good human being is are honestly, they're wrong. Oh, I mean... <laughs> To, to not show weakness is supposed to be a good human being. To never change your mind. I mean, that, of course, that's kind of old school, but that's still around. To be firm in your convictions and have, you know, firm beliefs. Well, most beliefs are bullshit anyway. You should question your beliefs and not hang tightly onto them and be proud of them, you know. Some beliefs are, are necessary to get through life. Like I have a belief that um, in a honest i mean in in an intimate relationship honesty is the best policy now with with irrational authorities that might be out there trying to put you in jail or something um honesty isn't always the best policy but in an intimate relationship so i mean i'm just telling you what one of my beliefs are but back to this um this idea of redefining the good human being so i want people to try on the idea what if self-knowledge and being more authentically myself, because these are things I actually can control. What if my self-esteem and worthiness was based on this instead of some external criteria? Yeah, of cultivating the self-knowledge rather than, you know, the dollars in your bank account or, you know, how many people you've slept with or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So this is, it's it's really, you know, there's this... Um, famous book by Joseph Campbell called The Hero's Journey. It's actually called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. 
but it's about the human journey. And of course, his is, is more of a spiritual and archetypal, which means sort of the essential human dilemmas. Um, so that hero's journey idea really is about just becoming your authentic self. That's, that's, that's a Joseph, Joseph Campbell's no relationship to me, but he's a great man and deserves to be, deserves to be studied. The hero with a thousand faces. It's about mythology, but it's also the, the journey of every human. And it, it kind of helps you redefine what a good human being is. Sure. But I want to say I'm writing a new book that's going to be even more useful to deal with uh, the questions that, that you pose to me. Um, it's really a book on, it won't be out until 2021 though, but I want people to look for it. And it's called I'm Triggered. But it's really about how to use daily life as an inner awareness practice so that everything that life throws to you, I show you how to pause, get calm, and go inside and inquire and get to know yourself through the things that happen to you in your daily life, particularly those things that are painful or that you resist, of which there are plenty, as we all know. Do you have, so where can people, I know you have a website. If you come to susancampbell.com, right in the center of the homepage, it says something about um, get a surefire way to build confidence because I send out a free ebook about conf- building self-confidence in some of the ways that I've talked about, like becoming more resilient in the face of emotional pain. That's sort of my, my bottom line teaching here. So go to susancampbell.com and and it says click to enroll on the page, but that's really click to subscribe to my newsletter. And in that newsletter, I announce a free teleclass, like a little seminar, one hour seminar. Every month I give us a free seminar on Tuesday afternoons, East Coast time. It would be um, more like seven o'clock East Coast time and it's 4 p.m. Pacific time on a Tuesday. So anybody who is enjoying this podcast can be in touch with me over time. And in my newsletter, we'll tell you about various events that I'm doing. Plus I always add some tips and tools, very practical stuff uh, in a lead article. So there's always like a educational article and then announcements. Awesome. Well, it's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's been a pleasure reading these books um, it's good to have, you, you know, your voice in the world helping people with these, these very difficult issues, especially when it comes to relationships, not only with themselves, but with the people in their lives. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for doing this. I think it's a great service you're doing. So I look forward to our next conversation, Josh.